CBD FX's CBD products are formulated to boost overall wellness and deliver calm vibes for daytime and nighttime use. CBD FX uses only organically grown hemp and all natural ingredients. CBD FX's best selling line of CBD products features wellness boosting CBD and legal Delta 9 THC gummies, oil tinctures, capsules, pens, and other products. Visit CBDFX.com today and use code Genius to get 25% off site wide plus a free CBD bath bomb with your first purchase. The code is GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners, only at cbdfx.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. We've got a very interesting guest today, uh, Richard Whitehead. Uh, he runs a company currently called Professional Public Safety Services, LLC. Uh, Rick began a public service career in 1977 in the U.S. Army as a military policeman and then as a civilian uh, he was a policeman in Houston, Texas, and uh, for the next 25 years, then with Travis County Sheriff's Office in Austin. We're going to talk about uh, what's called forensic statement analysis, which looks incredibly interesting. So welcome, Rick. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. When did this term first come about, and what is forensic statement analysis? I learned about it in 1999 when I had the chance to attend the FBI National Academy. The FBI has two academies that I'm aware of, one for their agents, and then they have another one that's for police administrators. That's a three-month in-house academy that about 1% of law enforcement gets the opportunity to attend. I was lucky enough to do that in 1999. And one of the classes I was in taught statement analysis. And I was just infatuated with it, loved it. It's about halfway through the class. I was like, wow, this is magic. And I'd already started a training company based off of a field training program I designed. So at the end of the academy, I asked my instructor if I could take this and teach it. And she said, yes, and let me have all their materials. I went back to Travis County and I was the major crimes commander at the time. So I used it with my major crimes detectives for a couple of years, honing my skills and, you know, using it in the real world. And then I wrote the curriculum and started teaching it. And now I teach it and consult with agencies on high profile cases. Oh, nice. So what is forensic statement analysis? It's the analysis of words of a person, whether it's a victim or a suspect in a crime, well, actually, it can be used with anything, but that's how I use it in my world. For example, say you say you burnt down your house for the insurance money, but you were claiming that, you know, you left for the gym and you came back and your house burned down. And you don't know what happened. You know, my house got on fire while I was gone. So I would hand you a legal pad and say, tell me everything that happened from the time you got out of bed this morning until you came home and found your house burnt down. And from the statements you write me, it kind of works like a polygraph. Our body is in conflict with itself when we're deceptive. That's how a polygraph works. It picks up on those physical changes in your body and, you know, the meter changes and that's how they know you're lying on the polygraph. The same thing happens with the words that we use. If we're going to be deceptive, unconsciously, we will change the words that we use. And 
in the statements that are analyzed, that's what I'm looking for is those changes. You establish a pattern of how someone's normally going to speak, and then you look for deviations from their pattern, and that tells you where the, the deception is or where the uncomfortableness is in the statement, and you can drill in from there. Hmm. Well, what, what if you're uh, talking to a suspect and you're just videoing the interaction? Can't you pick up, you know, have it transcribed and pick up statements from there as well? You can. That's kind of after the fact. This is works best, in my opinion. It works best if, say, like I'm going back to the example, you burnt your house down. I gave you a legal pad and have you write me a statement. I go back. I analyze that. When I'm doing my analysis, I'm using different colored highlighters and an ink pen, and I'm writing all over your statement and making notes to myself. Then when I call you in for an interview, it makes that interview a lot more impactful because I already have your story, and now I know exactly where I want to drill into your story if you're being deceptive. Oh, um, well, what if you did it during an interview? Do you think the person would be on guard and they wouldn't let this stuff slip as naturally? It's, it's hard to contain. Going back to the example where you burned your house down, say you write your statement. You know, I left my house. I came to the office. I came back to my house for lunch. I left my house to go back to work for a little while. I came back to my house. And then I left the house to go to the gym, and then I came back, and the fire trucks were here. Well, when you wrote your story, it was my house, my house, my house, my house, until the last time you left your house, and the last time you left your house, you called it the house. That was a psychological break from the house, because we have attachments to things we care about, whether it's people or things. And the, psych the psyche has to break that attachment, and when you left your house that last time, you said the instead of my. That was the break of that attachment, and that would throw a flag for me to pick a forward. Yeah, but if, uh, even if I love my house and it burned down, what's wrong with me saying the house after it burns down? Well, because it's that your psychological attachment still get, it's still going to be my house and you're going to have an emotional attachment to that house. And emotion is another thing we look for is, is the victim or suspect displaying the requisite emotion for the event that happens. And the more traumatic the event, the more emotion is seared into that event. And just saying, and just one flag, you know, just the one's the, if that's the only thing I have in your statement, then that's not necessarily deception. But when there's flag after flag after flag, then I want to start drilling in. Yeah. I've also, you know, it comes to mind. I read this book by uh, Theodore Dalrymple where he talked about the underclass in England. And I remember there was like a stabbing and the suspect said, oh, the knife went in. Not that I stabbed the person. The knife went in in a, like a passive voice. And it's like, come on, the knife went in. Get yeah. out of here, you know? And then Jeremy... Yeah, there's ownership will change. Objects will become independent. Instead of my gun, it's the gun. You know, the knife went in instead of I, you know, I stabbed him. There's those disassociations that occur because they don't want to have responsibility. Ah, interesting. Is there anything to be garnered um, when someone writes a statement? Like, do you ask them to sign it? Is there anything that's useful about that? Like, maybe, maybe people change their signature or they don't want to sign it or... They try to distance themselves in some other way? No, the signature doesn't make any difference to me. And in fact, when I teach my classes, a lot of agencies use, they have a header form where on the top of the paper, it says, I'm so-and-so. And on this day, you know, it's kind of a header setting up the statement. And then out at the bottom, there's a, you know, under, per, under penalty of perjury, I'm signing this. And psychologically, when they give them those forms with that header and footer, it ties them in to telling their story within that header and footer instead of, I mean, they might give them multiple pages, but psychologically that header and footer puts them in a box and they're just going to tell their story within that box. So I teach in my classes, if you can get away from using those forms in your agency, just give them a legal pad 
and give them a whole legal pad and tell them to use as much of it as they want. That way there's not a psychological close at the end of it with that, you know, under a penalty of perjury and them signing that. It's an open page and they can keep on flowing. So that reduces the pressure not to have that stuff there. Right. They don't feel pressure to keep it within that box or, the, you know, the, uh, under penalty of perjury, I'm writing this and just give them a legal pad, let them write. If they want to write, let them write. If you have to use that form, use it as a, a side form, get them to sign it, set it aside, and then staple your legal pad papers to it. Yeah, you're right. When I've had to sign stuff, like, I don't know, tax returns or whatever it may be, and they have that penalty of perjury stuff, you know, it makes you think, oh, geez, what do they want? I don't want to get in trouble for saying the wrong thing that they'll cry about or, you know, so like, it's like I would change what I would say to be like, what do they want? So I avoid trouble. That's what right. I think I would feel. And if it's a suspect in the case, they're already going to be read their rights before you put that statement in front of them. If it's a victim in a case, which is more often the when I'm involved is when it's a victim, it's a person claiming to be a victim that's actually suspect. So they're writing their statement from the victim. You know, they're claiming to be the victim. So they're writing their statement from that point of view. And then in the review of the statement, in the analysis is where I find if they're being deceptive where you find that that's not true. Yeah, what's the difference you see in statements from actual victims versus perpetrators? Well, if it's an actual victim, then their statement's not throwing any of those linguistic cue flags, like changing from my to the, or say in assaultive crimes. If you're, if say, are you married, Rich? Yeah. Okay, so you call your wife by her name, and or is, she's my wife, and but if you assaulted her and she called the police on you, when the police got there, when she described that assault, she would just be referring to you by your name. She would not say my husband because my husband is a relationship term. And you assaulted her, you violated that relationship. So her psyche is going to break that relationship and it's going to be Richard. Richard. I know I'm in trouble. I know I'm in trouble at all when my wife calls me by name. So you, you see that happen quite commonly? Like if there's, uh, again, domestic violence, you know, let's say the woman was attacked by the man. So she will say the person's name instead of my husband. Right. It might be, she might use my husband talking about the day before the event, but once she gets into talking about the assault, it's going to change to the name. The relationship's going to be broken. It's, the psyche breaks that relationship because it's been violated. Just like in a sexual assault, in a sexual assault case, if it's a sexual assault, the victim will not refer to their attacker in the we, that we did this, we did that, we did this. It's going to be, he made me, he made me, he forced me, he took me. If they use the word we, we is a relationship, and there should not be a relationship in a sexual assault. If it's a true sexual assault during the assaulted part of it, the we is broken. Well, it's another thing to look for is how the pronouns are used and make sure the pronoun usage flows correctly. Oh, really, very interesting. That there is a relation, relationships where there's supposed to be relationships and not relationships where there should not be a relationship. So the first example you gave with the house burning down, the person changed to the house and they distanced themselves from the house. And then in this other example, it was the opposite. They got more personal about it by saying the husband's name instead of saying my husband. CBD affects full spectrum and broad spectrum CBD products are formulated to boost overall wellness and deliver calm vibes for daytime and nighttime use. CBD effects is offering our listeners an exclusive 25% off, which I think is very generous, plus a free CBD bath bomb with your first purchase when you use the code GENIUS. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at cbdfx.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. Well, my husband equals a relationship. Calling him by name, is they're just another person. Oh, so it's distancing just in a different way that seems more personal but is less. 
Correct. Okay. Okay. Huh. Weird. Like I'm cleaning my gun. You know, I went to the store. I bought a gun. And I came. I brought my new gun home. I'm cleaning my gun. The gun went off because now you know there's a bad action with the gun. So it's not my gun anymore. It's the gun. Are there any examples where it's the opposite becomes more personal? Well, if it's if the if the relationship is maintained. If I'm looking for a relationship and there is established a relationship, that's good. Or if I'm looking for the relationship and there's not one, then I got to question why. So if if you're telling me you came home from work and you found your wife deceased and it's, you know, my wife, my wife, say your name is Ann. Ann, you know, I, I left this morning, I left my wife Ann. And then after that, it's going to be my wife or we. You're going to refer to that relationship and they're going to use the we. If you didn't ever refer to her as your wife, you just kept saying Ann, Ann, Ann. And it was never a we that I would suspect a relationship because you're not building the relationship for me. Hmm. I've spoken to uh, some friends, and I remember one of them, I don't know, I think they were talking about their dad, and they said, dad, instead of, like, my dad, why do you think that someone would do that? And, you know, there wasn't anything terrible that happened, but, I don't know, they were just talking about their dad, and for some reason they said their dad as if it was my dad. Why would people do that? Well, that... They just said dad, assuming that you know they're talking about their dad, because if they say dad did this or dad did that, who else who else's dad are they going to be talking to instead of having to say yeah. my dad? So that would not that would not be a big indicator for me. Yeah, it's just something that flashed in my head that I thought was strange, you know, because I've heard that a couple times, you know, in the past. But you know, they 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 drop the pronoun, and if they did that a lot in the statement, dropping a pronoun usually indicates that there's tension instead of saying I went here, I did this, I did that. If they drop the I, went here, did that, then I would wonder, why is there tension in that? Why are they dropping their pronoun? Say you came, you went to the gym a while ago. If, you know, I went to the gym, met a guy, we talked for a while, then I came home. Well, well, I kind of screwed that up when I said it. Met a guy, talked for a while. So you left it off that I met a guy, we talked for a while. If you drop those two pronouns when you're talking to that person at the gym, then that indicates tension to me. So I would want to explore, what about me talking to that person at the gym caused you tension? Because you you didn't say I met him and you didn't say we talked you just said met a guy talked for a while you would say right. you, you just gotta it's the flow of the pronouns is one of the key indicators of of speech and if it flows correctly and establishes a relationship or and the whole thing revolves around establishing the norm so when I hand you that statement I'm going to get you to or that legal pad I'm going to get you to write a little bit about before the event happened you know tell me everything from the time you got up until the fire truck came. So that helps me establish the norm in how you're going to communicate with me before the event. And then once we get into the event, then it makes it easier for me to find a deviation from your norm. And that's the two tech that's the two parts of the techniques that we use is what is the norm? How are you going to what is your norm in communicating with me? And then looking for that deviation. If you never use the pronouns and never possess your pronouns, if that's your norm, then while that's not norm for a lot of people that's your norm that's not going to be deception for me well sadly i have to ask you in today's day and age for people with crazy pronouns what what do you do in those cases or is it so rare it doesn't <laughs> i i haven't had to deal with the you know what are your pronouns i haven't had to deal with that yet thank god but how how somebody's going to use them i find when i send text you know sometimes just the laziness of sending text i'll drop pronouns and then i'll catch myself like oops that doesn't sound right or you know that that indicates deception i'm leaving those pronouns out so i have to, i back up and plug in my pronouns so in a text you know how you communicate in text may be different than how you communicate when you're writing a statement or how you how you're going to communicate verbally and you mentioned earlier a you know having an interview and recording that and then doing it later 
that is another way to do it, having it transcribed, but then you're just playing catch up, having to re-interview them and do that again. I see what you mean. Okay. So um, using the passive voice and changing pronouns for people or objects are two tells so far, right? The the key things are establishing the norm and looking for the deviation. And one of those ways is in their pronouns and requisite emotion. Are you exhibiting the requisite emotion for the event you're describing? Do you remember uh, the Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh Ford Supreme Court stuff? A little. I probably heard him speak, but I don't remember what he said. Well, Dr. Ford, who claimed to be a victim of sexual assault, did not display the requisite emotion for that event and had a very poor memory about the event, which is contrary to the trauma of that type of situation. Where when you were in watching Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh displayed requisite emotion for what he was being accused of in his denial. Mm-hmm. Okay. So requisite emotion, I guess, is the third thing. What about giving too many details that are unnecessary or extra adjectives or stuff yes, like that? Yes, that, that's, that's another key is we call that extraneous information. Deceptive people have an innate need to tell you why something happened versus what happened. When I had you the legal pad and say, tell me what happened, if there's a whole bunch of why this happened versus what, in all that extraneous information, they have a need to fill the paper with words. And then when you analyze it, those words really don't mean anything. So that that's another tale of extraneous information. Hmm, okay. So what's another example of that? That made me come up in case you remember. Well, I'll just give you an example. I use in the class. It's just a made-up case. It's a guy comes home and uh, his wife notices or he tells her somehow or other she knows that there was a woman in the car. So she's like, why was that woman in our car? And he, first of all, he repeats the question. Let me tell you why the woman's in our car. Well, when you repeat the question, that's an indicator that you're stalling for time. And then he goes into, I went to the bar to watch the ball game. And then he spends the rest of the whole legal pad page talking about how the game went, the noise in the bar. He was very careful to only have two beers an hour. It was a rowdy crowd. And then at the end of the game, you know, at the, when the game was over, she asked me if I could take her home. I said, yeah. Well, the answer to the question is I went out, I was at the bar having a beer. The lady asked me if I ride home. I took her home. That whole 10 lines, 20 lines of all about the game and only having two beers an hour and all the other stuff is extraneous and does not answer the question. Well, especially because the person knows they're being questioned about the lady they took home. So why spend all that time talking about the game? Right. But a truthful answer is the shortest answer. I was at a bar. lady asked me for a ride. I gave her one. There's the answer to the question. All that other is superfluous. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Are there any other tells or um, are there things like you can't disclose unless you're in law enforcement? And do they receive a, a higher level of training or a deeper level than what you described so far? Another tell is lack of conviction. When somebody uses a lot of, I don't know, I don't remember, I think, maybe, when they're telling their story with a lack of conviction, that's another tale because whatever event they're evolved in, they should know that story and they should be able to tell that story. Honest people can tell you the story. It doesn't take a lot of memory to do it. They can tell it frontwards and backwards and it has all the details in it you want. A deceptive person is making up the story. They're trying to convince you so it's not going to have a lot of detail. They can't tell it frontwards and backwards, and it takes a lot of mental energy to do that. And oftentimes, they'll tell it in current tense instead of past tense. If the event's already happened, it should be in past tense. So if it goes to current tense, that's another flag. Current tense. So, so you'll ask some people to describe a story, let's say, of being attacked, and they'll say, he's attacking me, he's pulling off my pants, he's he's doing this, he's grabbing me, That like literally in present tense. Yes, and that's an indicator that they're making it up on the fly, and we find that in a lot of deceptive statements. They'll 
they may start in past tense, but it's psychologically, it's really, it takes a lot of energy and hard to maintain that. So they'll slip into the current tense and tell the bulk of the story in ter- current tense and not realize they're doing it that way. I guess if you think about these things, they're really weird. But uh, yeah, they're interesting tells. Very strange. It takes a lot of mental energy to, to do it. So it's, if even if somebody knows the tales, they can't keep it up. What what happens if, um, I don't know if you ever tried this, but you have someone write out a statement and then you have them read it to you. Does that do anything? You know how um, sometimes when people will make a statement, they'll be like, and then he went to the store? You know, the voice goes up versus, and then he went to the store down to show, uh, you know, they're not certain about what they're saying. Would that be useful? It might be. I've never done that since I've been retired. They're retired in 2010. Most cases I work on now, an agency will call me and then email me the statements. So I don't even get the chance to ask them the question that I want, that the statement's about. I just get what they've already produced and have to work off of that. And it makes it harder for me because I'm not the one asking the question, but it can be done. Somebody that's more versed on the, the voice inflection and body language and stuff, that might be beneficial for them. I have a cursory training in, in that and I can spot body language cues and things like that, but I wouldn't consider myself an expert in that part of it. Have you ever done um, any of this with like hostage situations where, uh, you know, you're, let's say, one of the people listening in and analyzing what the person's saying in real time? Or is this, again, uh, it's, it's getting to do it this way? I have in my career. I was a SWAT commander a couple of times and I have negotiated people out of the house, but it was, this wasn't, actually, I wasn't training this at the time I was doing that. So I couldn't tell whether it would work then. But usually in those situations, it's they want something and you have to just, Try to get them to feel comfortable with the situation and realize that there's no out and, you know, time is on our side and we're going to be here as long as it takes. And eventually they just, okay, they concede and they realize nobody's going away. It's not coming out. A couple of cases where I worked for the sheriff's department and we were, our SWAT team would respond to areas, around, you know, in multi-county regions around Austin. So it wasn't necessarily Austin PD, but the person that's barricaded might have had a bad relationship with the police department before and, you know, felt they were a bit rough. So a lot of the negotiations on our side was, look, just lay down your weapons, come outside, you know, follow the orders that the officer gives you and everything's going to be all right. We're not going to, you know, we don't want anybody to get hurt. We're not going to hurt you. And it's, it hadn't always gone that way for them. So it's talking them fast, getting them to trust you to do what you want. Okay. Um, what if you have someone write it in cursive nowadays, probably couldn't because a lot of people don't know cursive, but, um, would that do anything versus in print or what if someone's like, I don't know how to write and, you know, could you ask them the questions and write down what they say? Would that work? In that case, I would put a recorder in front of them and record the questions and their their replies and then just have that transcribed after the fact. I've had statements where I've had a hard time reading the writing and, you know, I'll go to my wife and say, what do you think this is? What are they, what, what are they saying here? Because I can't understand it and we'll collaborate on it. And my wife is as well-versed or better-versed in this than I am just from being around me for our marriage and me doing this and, you know, hearing me do it and just being immersed in it. She She's as good as I am, and so I use her in a lot of cases. But if I can't read it, then, then I'll just record it and get it transcribed. The key to that is whoever does your transcribing has to do it in exactly the words that they said. They can't, you know, help them with the punctuation or grammar and stuff like that. It has to be exactly in their words. I've done cases that were lawyer assisted, for example, officer involved shootings, uh, doing the officer statements. And those are going to be done with the assistance of a lawyer. And you can see the, where the lawyer, you know, said, be sure to say this or be sure to say that. And the techniques will still work in that. You just have to know that it's not a pure statement because it's been elaborated on. 
What about if uh, English isn't the person's first language? Do you ask them to do it in their native language or in English? I've never run into that problem. I've had people tell me that the way in, in other languages, you know, the pronouns or there's some, their language doesn't flow like ours. You may be more, more problematic, but thankfully I've never had that issue. The main question I get is what about education level? You know, the lack of education or extreme education and or parts of the country they live in, things like that. That part doesn't matter because what I'm looking for is what is their norm and how they're going to communicate. Everybody has a norm regardless of their education level. So what is their norm? And then looking for them to deviate from their norm. And if I have to yeah, what, get a recording and transcribe that to, to be able to do it, then that's fine too. Yeah, right. What if you're, I don't know, it's white collar crime and let's say you're uh, getting a statement from a CEO and they've had a lot of media training, you know, against adversarial questions being asked in interviews. Does that make it harder or is that so rare? It doesn't matter. Or again, if someone has a, if a very highly educated person, being educated, does it matter? It would, it might matter some in that they're going to be maybe more descriptive and the, their statements are going to be better structured. But even with media training, it's, I'm going to ask the question, look for an answer. If they don't ask the question or they dance around it, then I'm going to ask it again until they give me an answer to the question I'm asking versus well, politicians do, you know, they hardly ever answer a question. They dance around them. But so I would funny, just like, ask it until like, I get the answer. It'd be funny. Like, did you, did you kill that woman? That's a great question. But I think a better question to ask is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've had statements. I've, yeah. And I've had statements where they'll, you know, they'll write a pretty short statement and say, you know, that's pretty much what happened. Okay. So I'll tear those pages off and say, okay, I don't need the Raiders Digest version on, you know, that's basically what happened. Could you start over, please, and tell me everything that happened? Okay. Gotcha. Is it better to do this when someone's tired and someone's been in custody for a long time or when they're fresh or does that matter? It doesn't matter to me. I usually get these cases where they're not in jail. They're, like I said, most of them are the victims. They're claiming to be the victim and are being suspected as being the suspect. So they're not in jail. They're, you know, they come into an interview room. The investigator sets them down with the legal pad and says, you know, tell me what happened. And then they take that statement and scan it into a email and send it send it to me. So they're not in custody. They might be nervous because they're in a police department or a sheriff's office in an interview room, but they're usually left alone in the room with the legal pad so they can sit there and catch your breath and then start writing. The reason we collect them either in writing or in a recording is because if I let you send me an email or put you in front of a computer to type a Word document, you may type me a whole page or paragraph and then think, Oh, no, I don't want to say that. And you back all that out, and I don't know you did that. So you're editing out information that you initially told me. You're handwriting it. The only way for you to edit out that information is to draw a line through it, and I can then analyze what you wrote down or why did you write it, put a line through it. Actually, that could be really useful if you put someone in front of a computer that has a keystroke logger um, in the police station and they do that. Then you, you know, if you see them do that and it's all logged in the keystrokes, you'd get information that. They didn't know that they were going to give you. So it actually might be a good thing. If you had the keylogger, yes. And that's what I mentioned in my class is if you're going to let somebody use computer to do it, then you need to have keylogger software on it so you can see if they edit out any information they give you. Is there uh, any point in videoing the person as they write the statement to watch them like, is they sweat or they rub their head or they, you know, the body language cues as they're writing it. If they're like, oh, when the person started describing this part of it, you know, they rubbed the back in their neck like four times and they did this and that. That added to the, the confidence that we had that the statement was bullshit. That could have benefit. I haven't done that, but I can see where 
if you knew if you could see the where they're at in the statement when and how they're acting that could be a benefit during an actual interview watching how somebody reacts to questions is very telling and a lot of times interviewers use the wrong type setup and office chairs and stuff for their interviewee when actually you want them in a swivel chair that moves because that's where that nervous energy is going to be translated into that chair so the more that chair moves the more you know you're making them uncomfortable and that it might just be uncomfortable or it might be deception but it gives you it gives you clues to explore yeah interesting Hmm. um I don't know. Are there any recent changes to this, you know, this practice, any new learnings that, that you're getting, you know, now that it's been around for like 24 plus years, any new innovations? Not that I'm aware of. I use the old fashioned way that I learned. I use four color highlighters and an ink pen. And I think I've seen on the internet that, you know, there's a company or two out there that claims to have a software that will do it. I'm not really confident in how a software could do that. And I've never seen it work. So Somebody would have to demonstrate to me and show me compared to get, uh, somebody manually doing it and then taking the software and letting the software do it and see what the changes are. I just, I don't have confidence in it. I just have to see it work. How uh, how powerful is this method? Any examples where, and like, how do you use this? You mark up the statement and then you shove it in front of the person's face and be like, look, we know you're lying. You know, I text <laughs> did that, but how is it used? Actually, I have done that once. I had a lady that claimed to be uh, kidnapped and driven around town and forced to do drugs and wrecked her car and raped. And so she came in and wrote her statement. And the, my detective came to my office and said, you know, can you work your magic on this and let me know what you think? And I said, yeah, schedule her for a follow-up interview next week and I'll get back to you. So her statement, there was so many, so much highlighting and writing on it that, you know, the paper kind of crinkled up from all the wet highlighter ink on it. So when I walked you know, into the detective's office when he brought her back in, I held her statement out in front of her and I said, you see all the different colors on your statement there and all that extra writing on your statement there? Yes. I said, all that means you're lying. Okay. So (laughs) you, you can do it that way, but that's the exception to the rule. Usually when you're doing your analysis, you have a, when I'm analyzing a statement, I have a separate legal pad for myself and I'm writing questions. I'll reference the line. Okay. Online. On line 15, I want to ask about this. On line 22, I want to ask about this. And that's how I work with agencies is when they send me reports or statements, I'll write them a report back saying, okay, there's this many signs of a lack of conviction. There's this much extraneous information. There's, you know, the pronoun use went south here. And so I explain all the techniques. And then I say, I would ask them this question. And I'd reference the line in their statement. Reference to this line of statement, ask them this question. In reference to this line, you need to ask them this question. Explore, you know, dig into this area right here because this is there's some big flags here. So I send it as a report back to them. It's an investigative tool, just like a polygraph is. It's it's a tool that you can use in your investigation in your interviews, but it's not admissible in court. Oh, really? Hmm. Well, I was going to ask you, how do you establish the confidence level of what you're seeing? Like, how do you know? Oh, yeah, this this person's freaking lying. Or you know, I can't really tell. It's uh, that's true. It's the number of cues on the page. If you were if you were in my class, it'd be easier to show you on a page that okay, see this, you know, right here. There's they used a couple of verb tense changes here, but or editing phrases here. But the way they used them, it doesn't really bother me. But if they have a whole bunch of those, like I said, I use four different color highlighters. So if I only got a couple of marks on your statement, then I'm not going to think that's a big deal. But if your statements, you know, wrinkle it up because it has so much highlighter marking on it, then the more it makes me make comments or highlight, the more problem we got. 
you know, one thing I just thought of too is like nowadays, you know, if you have someone do the statement and then you subpoena their text messages, if you could, and you compare the two, you might get a lot of info. You know, they always seem to talk this way in text, but writing the statement is totally different. Or if they're texting somebody and then they claim that didn't happen or it didn't happen the way they said it is, you can do the analysis against their text and see if they were lying to that person in their text. Hmm. Interesting. So where do you find, I know you're looking at the, the totality of the statement, but do you find that people are more deceptive in the beginning of a statement or as they go on, they relax and then they slip up more? Well, what I look for in a statement is to, to read kind of like a book. It should have an opening, you know, kind of setting it up, and then they get into the event, and then they close it. And the, the amount of time they dedicate to the opening and the closing should be similar. So if they're going to give me, say, 20% in the opening, then I'm looking for 80% of context and then 20% in the closing. So it's it's balanced. If it's way out of balance, that's another indicator of deception. So you look for balance and then all the other cues and then but like I you know, was telling you earlier, I'd like to get my writers to tell me about their day before the event happened. So then it makes it easier. So once they get into the event, if things start changing, then that's a, it makes it a lot easier to find the, the linguistic cues there. Well, what will people do if they're deceptive? They shortchange the ending or do they make it really long? No, usually it's there's a whole bunch of extraneous information at the beginning. And then they'll talk about the event and they'll just say, and that's it. They just kind of stop. Instead of closing it all, closing it down, this is, you know, this is what happened. Then they left and, you know, then I called the police. And so one of the first things I do when you send me a statement is I number all the lines. So if there's a hundred lines, okay, 10 of those are opening, then I should get 10 lines to close it or, or roughly, you know, eight to 10. So it's relatively balanced. And if those are out of sync, then that's just another, another indicator of why. And that's the question I'm asking the whole time you're doing the analysis is why. Why did they say this? Why did they say it there? Why did they say it that way? Okay. How how powerful has this been for you? It's very powerful. I guess the hardest part of it is most officers doesn't know this, don't know this technique exists, or when they see a class about statement analysis, they think that's like analyzing bank statements and or financial records and stuff like that. They don't realize that it's reading people's words to find the deception of what they're telling you. So it's the hardest part is the unknown. People don't know what's out there. And then when they do, you have to kind of cherry pick when you use it because you analyze a statement to give your a, a good analysis of a statement. I'll read it through the first time and then I'll I'll work it with the different highlighters and then I'll sleep on it and then I'll come back the next day and I'll work it again and then I'll walk away for a few hours and then I'll work it again. So it'll get, I'll work it four or five times different days, different times of day, because what strikes me is might be lack of conviction today when I read it tomorrow. No, that's, I, I can see where that's not like it. So you, you get a different feel for it. And mm. most investigators have so many cases, it would be impossible for them to use this technique on every single case. They'd have to cherry pick what case they really want to do it on. But sexual assault, sexual assaults and white collar crimes are the, the most telling ones. Oh, how come? Because it's easier to establish the pronouns in the relationship. Oh, I see. I see. Do lawyers use this? Have you ever trained any lawyers to use it in court? I have trained lawyers, and I've trained prosecutors. I can't remember. There was a state I trained their whole office. It was a state office of all their lawyers. I can't remember what they called that division. So I've trained lawyers. I've trained IRS agents, investigators of all types, patrol people, Texas Rangers. Oh, which kind of groups seem to have been uh, the most excited about it or you know, gave you like the best testimony 
I was like, wow, it really helped us. Do they do say thanks, bye, and then you never hear, hear from them again? It's real sporadic. It's more individual versus a group, a group of people. Because some people, kind of like me, when I was taking the class, you know, after about halfway through the class, I'm like, wow, this is magic because the tales start jumping off the page at you. Now, watching TV interviews or reading articles in the paper, you're like, you know, you see a politician get interviewed, you're like, oh, no, that's baloney. You know, it just becomes part of your everyday review of things. So people, some people just really get into it and others are like, yeah, this is a cool tool and walk away and never use it. Just, I think it's individual based versus type of a type of job. Uh, what, what's the future of FSA? That's I just made the acronym. Um, but what's the future of this, you think, in the next five, 10 years? Or is it it's good enough, just more people need to use it? I think it's great and just more people need to use it and understand what it is and and find a class. Uh, I offer, I have, an, uh, I have an online class that's eight hours that you do self-paced that you can get through my website that anybody can take. You don't have to be law enforcement. Anybody can get a hit to my website and take the class or actually attend the class. And I, I'm kind of old school. I think the in-person interaction in the classroom and, and talking about it and working through all the statements that in the classroom is more beneficial because you get different points of view. And that's another thing I tell the people that are in the class, especially if they're with similar agencies or agencies that are close to each other is, you know, you guys made contact in this class, swap business cards. So once you have that big case and you want to work it, reach out to them and let them work it too. And then come back to the conference table and compare your notes. Because what may seem extraneous to me might be lack of conviction for you. And we can talk about why it struck us that way and come up with a better interview. Very, very interesting. Well, this is great. Um, where can people get uh, your courses? So what's the website and what are resources for listeners? My website is, you can type it out long ways, professionalpubliccafetyservices.com. Or you can do PPSS, just the initials of all that, PPSS-LLC.com. That's the short way to get there, PPSS-LLC.com. And on the front page of my website, down toward the, on the right side, Toward the bottom, you'll, there's a link to the online class. Are you sure it's your website, and not the website? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's been a it's been a great call, Rick. I really appreciate this. It's very fascinating. So, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I love to talk about it and get the exposure out there. I wish more people would use it. Remember, before you go, check out CBDFX.com for the best in organic, all natural CBD products, both for you and your pets. Boost your wellness today and get 25% off your first order, plus get a free CBD bath bomb when you use code GENIUS at checkout. That's code G-E-N-I-U-S. Don't miss this special 25% off offer for Finding Genius listeners only at CBDFX.com. Offer expires August 31st, 2023. Feel the difference with CBDFX. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.